Good morning, good morning, good morning. I'm excited to get into the Word with you today. Hopefully you're excited as well. I'm always pumped to open the Word, but today we get to cover one of my favorite stories, favorite accounts in all of the Bible. It's in Judges chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, head over to Judges 3. Braveheart, The Last Samurai, Valkyrie, movies like this, Gladiator. These are some of my favorite movies because I like movies and stories about, you know, hardened warriors and, and fearless champions crossing enemy lines, facing the enemy head on, going against all odds, risking everything for the, the greater good. I love that. Especially when it's somebody who's going across enemy lines and, and kind of sneaking across and there's an assassination or there's a, an attempt to cut the head off of the snake. I love those kind of stories and those kind of movies. And what we're going to cover today is right up there with those. Absolutely. Super entertaining and awesome account in the Bible. We'll call it Lefty and the Fat King. You're going to love it. We are in a series of messages right now called Not for Sunday School, covering seven passages, stories, accounts in the Bible that you probably didn't hear about growing up in Sunday School. Or if you did hear about them, uh, maybe you got the made-for-TV version, we skipped some parts, or you didn't get the rest of the story, and so we're trying to tell you the rest of those stories. We started in Matthew 27 with the walking dead. We gloss over that passage a lot. Then we took, we looked at Gideon's faithless fleece in Judges chapter 6. We told you the rest of that story. Then last week, we spent time looking at the, the account in Genesis 19 about Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham's nephew, his name was Lot, his whole story. And you've heard that story before, but maybe not the end of it. If you missed any of those, make sure you get those messages online. Watch them this week with a friend or with your family so you can get caught up. But last week where we ended uh, the story of Lot, uh, his sin had gotten so deep and so intertwined with his life that he ended up passing that sin, the sin of Sodom, on to um, his daughters. And so they thought incest was a good idea, got him drunk, and ended up having sons. And those sons, Moab and Ben-Ami, became enemy nations to, Israelite, to, the, to the Israelites, Moabites um, and the Ammonites, these two people groups. Well, fast forward about 750 years on the biblical timeline from Genesis chapter 19. Then you'll end up in Judges chapter 3, where, where we'll pick it up today. This is just after the people of Israel have entered the promised land. Moses has been dead about 90 years. King David is still 300 years off in the future. And they're in trouble. They're in trouble. Enemy nations have come in. The Moabites, descendants of Lot and his daughter, have come in and overtaken them, conquered them, enslaved them, and have been oppressing them for 18 years. So what happened was they're being disciplined because when they came to the promised land um, in the beginning of, uh, or in the book of Joshua, just before Judges, when they got there, God said, okay, here's what you got to do. You're going to have to drive out everybody from the land because if you leave anybody, you'll end up intermarrying with them and you'll end up doing all of that and, and it's going to go bad. And so this is one of those times where an enemy nation has come in and they have begun to enslave and oppress the people of Israel. And 
And God is going to raise up in our passage a deliverer, a judge, a savior, and his name is Ehud. Ehud is an incredible man. We'll talk about him in just a minute. But I do want you to know uh, that today's passage is very gory. It is, it is biblical and it is awesome. Don't get me wrong, but it is a little gory at least. But if you've let your kids watch you know, PG-13 Marvel movies, you've already surpassed Judges chapter 3, so don't even worry about it. So Judges 3, I love this passage. One of the reasons I love it is because of all the detail that God inspires the biblical writer to include. I mean, some awkward, weird detail, but every detail has a reason. So Judges chapter 3, starting in verse 15, we'll come back and cover some earlier verses in just a moment, but the Israelites are enslaved and oppressed by the Moabites, whose king is Eglon. Look at Judges 3, starting in verse 15. It says, Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. So lots of detail in there, right? He's a left-handed man. Left-handed people unite! Unite in the comments! Tell us you're left-handed! Tell us why that's so much better than your evil overlords, the right-handed people. Let's keep reading. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, that's about 18 inches. And he bounded on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. Fat people unite in the comments. Tell us you're fat. No? Is fat not a nice enough word? How about husky people unite? Round people? Muffin tops? Tell us who you are. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. He was a very fat man. Eglon, the king of Moab, was a fat man. Lefty and the fat king. Look at verse 18. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he, the king, commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. So say, okay, so Ehud brings a tribute from the Israelites to this evil, pagan, tyrant of a king that is enslaving the people of Israel. And, and he, he offers him the tribute, and then he leaves, but he turns back and says, I've got a message for you. And the king entertains him and wants to hear this message. Look at verse 20. And Ehud came to him, the king, as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he, the king, arose from his seat. So, so Ehud is very skilled. Okay, he is very skilled. He manages to get a private audience with this tyrant overlord who's enslaved the Israelites for 18 full years. And they're on the cool roof chamber, which is basically this room on the flat roof with some windows that would allow breeze in. And it's a place where a king would go uh, just to kind of hang out by himself or to have maybe a private meeting with someone. And so, so Ehud gets into this cool roof chamber with the king, and he says, I have a message for you from God. And, and Eglon doesn't seem to, you know, suspect anything, so he stands to receive this message from Ehud. Look at verse 21. 
And he had reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. So a lot of detail there. Reaches with his left hand to his right thigh and stabs the king in his belly. Uh, An average person would reach with their right hand to their left thigh, so maybe that's why the king wasn't ready for it. Lots of detail, but even more detail in the next few verses. Look at verse 22. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the, flat, and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. The dung came out. Wow. So this is it's bad enough to get stabbed. Am I right? But when the sword gets lost inside, that's special. All right? That is absolutely special. The dung came out. Look at, look at the next verse, verse 23. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. So he moves quick enough that, that the king doesn't sound alarm. Nobody knows what's going on. And he sneaks out, locks the door behind him. He's got to get out of the city before they find out and kill him. Verse 24. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. Why did they think that? Because the doors were locked and because of the smell. Remember the, remember the details in the last couple of verses? The dung came out, and so every detail has a reason. Look at verse 25. And they, they waited till they were embarrassed. And when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Have you ever, have you ever waited outside of a bathroom until it's like getting awkward? Like maybe you're at your house, or maybe you're at a gas station, or at a restaurant, and it's like, oh my, what is going on in there? Like we are about, we're about to come in after you. It's my turn, all right? It gets embarrassing. The the servants are waiting outside thinking he's in relieving himself and it gets embarrassing to the point where finally they just open the door and go in and they find their king dead. It's like, man, I told you we should have gone in sooner, right? I told you something was up, right? Why is this important? It's because all of this, the embarrassment, the smell, the waiting, all of it is is factoring into this long delay, which is allowing Ehud to get out of the city alive. Get out of the city before they know their king is dead and they start to look for him. And, And then he goes and he's able to lead Israel to freedom. Look at verse 26. Ehud escaped while they delayed and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syrah. When he arrived... He sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. They went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped, so Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Man, that's an awesome story, isn't it? I mean, it has all the right ingredients 
a people enslaved and oppressed, a, an evil, overweight king, a, a, a guy that's left-handed and crafty, who's like a spy slash leader, an assassination mission, dung. I mean, this is an awesome story, right? I get why we don't go into all the details in Sunday school. And I guess it doesn't have, you know, the love story piece to it. So I would get that, the, the account of Samson in the book of Judges. That reads like a soap opera. This one doesn't have any of that in it. But this is an awesome story. The question is, what, what are we supposed to get out of it? Like, What's our takeaway in this story? Is it like, you know, don't get too fat? Otherwise, you lose swords. Is that it? Is it always carry your sword on the right thigh? Is it lefties are better? Is it, I mean, what's train your servants better, maybe? Is that, is that the takeaway? Maybe it's something like be brave and God will protect you. Or, or what, about, what about this one? Your uniqueness makes you especially equipped to be used by God. That's like kind of meme-worthy, right? Like your uniqueness makes you especially equipped to be used by God. Our culture would love that because it puts us at the center, your uniqueness, you being used by God. What's the takeaway here? I, a lot of times that's kind of how we look at the Bible, right? We, we read a story or an account in the Bible and we kind of take it out and then we decide how are we going to apply it or use it. And I understand that at times, but it's much better if we look at any account, any passage, any story in the Bible and apply it within its own context rather than pulling it out of its context. The, the, the story, the account of Ehud is in the book of Judges. And like I mentioned earlier, in the book of Judges, the people of Israel are being disciplined for their disobedience, for not obeying the commands of God. When they got into the promised land, God said, you got to drive everybody out. You got to get the other nations out. Otherwise, you'll intermarry with them and you'll end up worshiping false gods. And, and the Israelites said, yeah, we're going to do it. We got it. We've seen you do amazing miracles. We only want to worship you. We're in. But then they didn't do it. They left the people there. And sure enough, just like the one true God warned them, they began to worship false gods. And so they began to reap punishment and discipline because of their disobedience to God. They keep getting conquered and enslaved and oppressed by all these enemy nations that are all around them. And, and to be clear, it's not just natural consequences. Like there's some of that here, just natural. There's some of that in our lives as well. When we make sinful decisions, we have to deal with the consequences, sometimes lifelong consequences of those sinful decisions. But so it's some of that, but it's not just natural consequences here. There's also this, this purposeful discipline from God, this, this divine discipline that God is entering into because of their disobedience. In Judges 3, here's what I mean. In Judges 3, it's not the Moabites that enslave the Israelites. Not, not really. I mean, not... Not really, it's, it's, it's God who does it. God puts his people, his chosen people, into bondage at the hands of the Moabites. 
I'm not making this up. Check it out. It's the first few verses that we skipped over in the beginning of this this, um, account. It's Judges 3, starting in verse 12. It says this, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. God did this. I mean, this was, make no mistake, God did that. I mean, maybe, maybe he used the Moabites to, to be kind of his paddle, like his means of discipline towards the Israelites, but, but God did. God put his people, his chosen people, into slavery at the hands of the Moabites, Amalekites, and Ammonites. By the way, the Ammonites, those are the descendants of Lot's other daughter. So natural consequences, absolutely but also divine judgment as God uses them to discipline his people because of their disobedience. And this happens over and over and over in Judges. And each time God allows an enemy nation to come in and and conquer and oppress and enslave his people as an act of discipline, each time that happens, eventually the The people cry out in humility and they need help and God sends a judge, a deliverer, a savior. Not not perfect heroes, but sinful people that God chooses to use despite their sin. You see, the point of judges is not be like the judges and, and defeat your enemy. The point of the, the, the Ehud account here in Judges chapter 3, it's not, it's not be brave and God will use you or, or your uniqueness you know, makes you especially able to be used by God, equipped to be used by God. It's not that because Ehud is, a, is, a, is just one in a long line of judges. It keeps happening. The story keeps repeating itself. Every time a judge comes and delivers them, the people of Israel sin again, and God's discipline comes again. Ehud ushers in 80 years of peace, but the people of Israel sin again, and God disciplines again through the Philistines. And and then he raises up a deliverer, Shamgar, who whoops up on 600 Philistines with an ox goad, which is like a long stick. And And that brings peace for a while, but the people sin again, and and then there's discipline again, and then they cry out again, and then God raises up Deborah and Barak to lead them, and that lasts for 40 years, but then Israel sins again, and and it just happens over and over and over, and after Deborah is Gideon. We talked about him a couple weeks ago. He doubts, and he doubts, and he doubts, but God uses him anyways, and he ushers in a time of peace, but the people of Israel sin again. And other judges come later. Abimelech is messed up. He's just absolutely messed up. Jephthah sacrifices his own daughter. Samson is deeply flawed. I mean, deeply flawed, arrogant, and reckless. And yet God chooses to use each of these people to to save Israel, to deliver them from the hands of their enemies. But the story is always the same. When the judge dies, The Israelites sin again. They worship false gods again. And God's discipline comes through another enemy nation. And 
And then they finally cry out eventually. The most repeated phrase in the book of Judges is this. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he caused them to be delivered into the hand of Philan enemy nation. That happens over and over. That is repeated over and over and over again. The point, the point is not, you can do it if you're brave enough. You can do it if you're strong enough. The point of the book of Judges is that even the best of us can't do it. Even our best Savior is not good enough. Even if you can offer salvation, some sort of salvation to yourself and to those around you, your brand of salvation and deliverance will not endure. The point of the book of Judges is that if we are going to survive our sinful nature, we're going to need God's direct intervention. If we're going to avoid hell, the just and right punishment, for each and every one of us, then we are going to need God's direct intervention. In the book of Judges, the cycle is sin, discipline, humility, salvation. Sin, discipline, humility, salvation. Over and over and over. Sin, discipline, humility, salvation. That's the cycle. Over and over and over, the people sin, they refuse to obey God, they worship false idols, they give themselves over to their sinful nature, and God disciplines. He brings an enemy nation in to conquer, to, to overthrow, to enslave, to teach them. Then eventually they move from discipline, sin, discipline, then humility. They move to, to where they humble themselves before God. That must have been kind of awkward because... Because they had just said to God for the last many years or each time, you know, that, that God isn't good enough, that they can find better and more things, you know, in, the, in other nations, in the world, and in the worship of false gods. And so they have to humbly kind of eat crow and come back to Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one true God, and ask for his help. Sin, discipline, humility. And that's salvation. God, in his grace, offers a deliverer, a judge, a savior. It's the same with us, right? That, that's the point. The, the people of Israel, the Israelites and judges, they're, they're us. We're the same. We're, we're just as wicked, blind, hopeless, helpless, apart from God's intervention. We sin. We run from God. We run towards temptation. We give in to our own sinful nature. And then God comes in and he disciplines. He could just wash his hands of us. He could just walk away from us and allow us just to keep going down that road. But instead, he, he disciplines us. And then hopefully, eventually, we humble ourselves. We ask for forgiveness. We ask for help. And God saves us from that sin. But then we do it again and again and again. This discipline includes its natural consequences, but it's also this divine, direct discipline from God. And discipline, discipline can, can take many forms. It could, be, it could be blessing removed, maybe financial blessing. It could be like in Judges where your enemies are allowed to prevail over you for a time. It could be that things just don't come easily as, as easily as they did before. 
This discipline could be a, a discontentment in, in your spirit. Like you just know something's not right. God's not giving you peace and rest. It's part of his discipline. It could be conviction. It could be godly sorrow over your sin. Discipline comes in many, many different, different ways. But it's always sin, discipline, humility, salvation. Sin, discipline, humility, and salvation. We keep sinning over and over and over, and yet God continues to discipline us in his grace and in his love for us. And that's, that's the point, isn't it? That God continues to love us, continues to discipline us, continues to allow us to go down this path and come back around to him. Sin, discipline, humility, salvation. But a lot of times, we want to skip straight to salvation, don't we? We want to go sin, salvation. <laughs> we want to skip over discipline and humility. We call that grace. Grace to us, to many of us, is that we keep on sinning and God looks the other way. After all, God's a God of love, right? He's not going to punish. He's not going to discipline. He won't be mad. It'll be okay. We want to go straight from sin to salvation, skip over discipline, skip over humility. But if you've, if you've been a halfway decent parent for like five seconds, you know that that's not the way it works. That's not, that's not love. I mean, discipline is grace, right? Discipline is a part of love, right? I mean, I, I don't like to discipline my kids. I, it'd be a lot easier for me, at least in the moment, to, to let them just do whatever they want and have no consequences, right? But, but that's not love. I, I discipline my kids because I love them. And it starts, it starts with just trying to keep them alive, right? Like, like, don't go in the street, and then they go in the street. And so I discipline, correct, punish, explain so that they understand. They go in the street again, and I discipline, correct, punish, explain. And I keep doing that over and over and over until they stop going in the street. Not because I have some deeply held principle about streets. I'm just trying to keep them alive. It's the same thing with touching a hot stove or running next to the pool or getting too close to the fire pit or Messing with mommy's throwing knives, right? But eventually, if I'm a good parent, I move on from just trying to keep them alive. And now I'm trying to, I'm trying to lead them towards something. I'm trying to keep them healthy and safe, but, but I'm also trying to help them to, to be equipped and prepared to, to follow Christ with their lives and to, 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 to fulfill the purpose and the mission God has given them to make and keep relationships. And so when I see destructive behavior happening in my kids, I, I have to discipline, punish, correct, explain. Just as if they're running out in a street full of traffic. It's because I love them. Not because I, have, not because I like it, not because I want to, but because I, because I love them. My, my son Joshua, he's six years old, and he... He's learning right now how to control his emotions, how to deal with his own temper and his own anger, like every kid needs to learn. 
Um, he's, he's learning that right now. Like, what do you do when, when people don't do what you want them to do? What do you do when people make you mad? What do you do when you don't get what you want? When people act in a way that you don't want them to act? It's a great, I mean, we all have to learn this, right? Adults really, there's some adults that really struggle with this because they didn't have parents that would correct and punish and teach in this way when they showed these destructive behaviors. But Joshua will, will tell them, okay, buddy, you know, Here's what we don't do in those situations. We don't, we don't yell. We don't throw things. We don't, uh, you know, respond and reciprocate with meanness. We don't do any of that. We, we walk away. We take a beat. We take a breath. We realize and remember that this person, usually it's his sister, right? This person is someone I love. And more importantly, it's someone God loves. We get mom and dad involved if we need to. So we teach and we set him up for success. But if he gets angry and he yells or he throws something or he does something like that, then we, we come in. I come in and I enter into discipline. I discipline. I correct. I punish. I explain. Not because it's fun, but because I want Joshua to grow up and be able to form and keep lifelong relationships. And I know that if he can't control his emotions, he won't be able to do that. And I want him to be able to keep a job. I want him to not be living in my basement when he's older. I want him to not be like some other guys I see out on Facebook, you know, sipping that keyboard courage and arguing with everybody under the sun. I don't want him to be like that. And so I, I intervene, right? I discipline, I punish, I correct, I explain. When, when one of my daughters lies to me, I discipline. Lying's a big deal in my house. Why? Because it destroys the relationship. And so I, I help them. It's a destructive behavior. I discipline, I punish, I correct, I explain. When one of my kids, God have mercy on their little souls, decides to disrespect mommy. That's the closest to a capital crime you can get in my house. When they decide to, dis, to disrespect mommy, I enter in and I discipline, I correct, I punish, I explain. Listen, little man, listen, little woman. This, my, you will respect my bride, your mom. She was here before you. She'll be with me after you. Don't make me choose. You're not going to like my choice. You will respect your mother. Beloved, I don't discipline my kids because I hate them. I discipline them because I love them. It's the same with God. He disciplines us because he loves us. Let me show you where that's at in the scriptures. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. Let me read it to you. It says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So that's, that's a quote from Proverbs chapter 3 that you can check out later. But then the writer of Hebrews goes on in verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Look at verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. 
Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God disciplines those he loves. The Israelites and judges, you, me. Sin, discipline, humility, salvation. That's the process. That's the way it works. And the discipline, the humility, the salvation, it's all God's grace. It's all his love. It's all because he loves us with an everlasting love. Listen, beloved, you can't love someone and do nothing when they start down a harmful path. That's not love. That's a special kind of hate. That may sound harsh, but it's supposed to. Obviously, there are times after you've warned, after you've tried to teach, when you have to let somebody make their own decisions. But you can't love someone. You'd have to hate them in a special kind of way to watch them stumble towards a cliff and do nothing. We discipline those we love. So we as parents, we discipline our children because we love them. God disciplines us because he loves us. And sometimes, sometimes there's real pain involved. Sometimes there's, there's real punishment involved. Sometimes it's difficult. There are consequences in this divine discipline. But just like Hebrews just said, it's painful for the moment. Everybody who gets disciplined knows it's painful in the moment. But in the end, it's for our good. Sin, discipline, humility, salvation. But you know what's better as a father, as a parent? You know what's better than having to enter into discipline and, and then moving your kids towards humility? What's better than that is when my kids move straight from sin to humility. They don't, they don't need me to discipline. They just, they move straight to humbling themselves. That's that's better. I mentioned earlier that my, my son Joshua, my six-year-old, is learning how to control his emotions and control his temper at times in a godly, you know, good way. Well, a couple Sundays ago, I was uh, downstairs in the morning getting ready to connect with you guys online, and I heard Joshua upstairs screaming, uh, yelling at his, his sister Hannah. So Joshua's six, Hannah's four, and every morning is the same for them uh, as long as there's no school. At seven o'clock, they're allowed to get out. 7 a.m., they can get out of their beds and they can play together or apart in their rooms. They can play until eight o'clock. They can't come downstairs or wake anybody up until 8 a.m. You may go like, what? You are so lucky. How'd you get kids that will stay in their rooms? How'd you, you know, my kid will never, he would never do that. They wake me up at 5.30 every morning. Well, your kids would do that too, right? Sure they would. Kids just need guidance. They just, if you let your kid wake you up at 5.30 every morning, they will. If you don't, they won't. 
If you let your kid sleep in between you and your spouse every night or multiple nights a week in your bed, that's what they'll do. If you don't, they won't. Kids just need guidance. So our kids do this this way. They stay in their, their rooms until eight and come down after that for breakfast. And so I heard Joshua yelling or screaming at Hannah. And so I started, I got up and started to go up the stairs to intervene, to discipline, to correct. But I got just outside their door, outside his door, and I heard him say, I'm sorry, Hannah. I shouldn't have yelled. I was just mad because you stepped on my Legos. And of course, Hannah said, I forgive you. She's a sweetie. So I didn't go in. I didn't discipline. I didn't correct. No need to. He was already humbling himself. Salvation was at hand. So I circled back with him later, told him I had heard what he said and what he did, told him I was proud of him. Here's what I'm getting at. There is a difference between the Israelites and judges and you and me today. A lot is the same. We're still just as wicked, sinful, blind, confused, deceived, hopeless, and helpless apart from God. But the difference is that you and I have the Holy Spirit of God living in us and among us. He lives in me, and he lives in those around me, in us and among us. In whom? Everybody? No. I'm talking to those of you who have surrendered your life to the last and lasting Savior, a judge, unlike the judges in the book of Judges, a deliverer whose deliverance endures, Jesus Christ. If you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, then the Holy Spirit of God lives in you. And so you don't have to wait for discipline and punishment before you move to humility. You don't have to wait for that. You can hear the voice of God, the voice of the Holy Spirit, and move straight to humbling yourself instead of being disciplined. I, as a spirit-filled believer in Jesus Christ, when I sin, I feel convicted. I feel sorrow over my sin. I know it's a sin. I feel drawn to confess and repent. And all of us, when we feel convicted, we have a choice. Conviction is the beginning of discipline. So all of us have a choice with conviction. We can persist in our sin or we can stop, confess, humble ourselves. When you feel convicted, you can you can find a bunch of friends to tell you that you're fine, it's okay, you don't need to feel bad, or you can own up to your sin, confess, ask for God's help, humble yourself, repent. Repentance just means you move in a different direction, away from sin and towards Jesus, towards salvation. Sin Discipline, humility, salvation. That's the cycle. That's, that's the process that all of us go through. And all of it is God's grace. It's his love towards us. He loves us with an everlasting love. He could wash his hands of us and walk away, but he doesn't. He loves us. He's intervening. And if you're going to survive your sinful nature, you're going to need God's intervention. If you are going to avoid hell, 
the right and just punishment for your sin and my sin, then you're going to need his discipline, his intervention. The question is, what kind of discipline will you require? Will you run to salvation, run to humility at the tiniest twinge of conviction? Or will you require a greater, more harsh discipline? That's up to you. I want to give you some advice and say instead of waiting for God to enter into a harsh discipline in your life like he did in the lives of the Israelites and Judges, and Judges 3 as the Moabites came in and conquered and enslaved, instead of waiting for that, instead of needing that, run to God, run to salvation, run to humility as soon as you're convicted. As we close today, I want to invite you into a moment of prayer. So wherever you're at, if you're watching online or um, you know, in your living room watching or on your, in your kitchen watching or on your phone or your TV, your tablet. I want to, as much as possible, invite you to enter into a quiet moment of prayer with me. Jesus, thank you for your word that's timely and timeless, that you speak to us through the book of Judges today, just like you did thousands of years ago. We thank you for that. God, we thank you for your discipline that you discipline those you love. And therefore, when we receive your discipline, we count it as your love and your grace towards us. Thank you, God, for that. Lord, I pray for us today that, that in this process, in this cycle of sin and discipline, humility and salvation, that we wouldn't stay in that, that aspect of sin or that stage of discipline long. But rather, we would run quickly when we hear the conviction of your Holy Spirit, the voice of your Holy Spirit, that we would run quickly to humbling ourselves before you, asking for conviction, asking for help, asking for ongoing power to repent and to be saved. As we continue in an attitude of prayer, maybe you're, maybe you're in here today and you've You've got something that, that you've been struggling through. It's, it's painful. Maybe today God's speaking to you and, say, hey, and saying, hey, this is, part of this is, is my discipline towards you. It's my love towards you through my discipline. Maybe today, if you're a Christ follower and you're feeling that, you would, you would accept that. You would say, God, I see this as your discipline. And you would ask the Holy Spirit to reveal what sin you need to confess, what sin you need to move away from, how God would have you humble yourself in order to be saved from that, from that pain. Maybe you're walking through that. Maybe the Lord is going to speak to you about that today. But I want to invite you to ask the question, how does this message affect me? How does this message apply to my life right now. Maybe you've never given your life over to Jesus Christ. You've never humbled yourself before him. You've never allowed him to save you. You have only ever persisted in your sin. Dealing with consequences, yes, but never recognizing the divine discipline of a loving father. 
I wanna invite you to make a decision for Jesus Christ right now. It doesn't matter that you're not in a church building. It doesn't matter that there's not a pastor next to you. You just need to pray and ask God to transform your life. Thank God for his grace shown in this process that he doesn't just leave us alone in our sin, but he brings us to salvation. It's all him, it's all his grace, it's all his love. Ask him to humble you, to save you, to lead you, to be the Lord of your life, to fill you with the Holy Spirit so that you can hear his voice and experience that conviction that we were talking about earlier. If you're watching on our website, there's a little button there that just says, raise a hand to, to let us know that you've given your life to Jesus or you wanna commit your life to Christ today. And then there's a, a button there that says live prayer. Click on that, we would love to pray for you. If you're watching in some other way, I just, I just wanna invite you to reach out to somebody, reach out to us, reach out to the host there, reach out, talk to the people who are in the room with you right now watching, ask for prayer, tell them that you wanna give your life to Jesus. We would love to hear about that and we would love to guide you in that process. Lord, thank you for moving upon our hearts and our lives. God, thank you for saving souls. I pray today that you would, that you would put a hedge of protection around each person who would make a decision, big or small, the beginning or farther along in the process, somebody who's followed you for a long time and somebody who's yet to make that decision, whatever that is, Lord, I pray that you would protect that, that it would like seed, find good soil, take root and bear fruit, that it would go from here, that it wouldn't be left here this Sunday, but it would go from here tomorrow and the next day and throughout our lives, that it would hang with us. And I pray God that you would bring people around us in our lives to help us to follow you completely and fully with all that we have. We love you and we give all of this into your hands and we trust you with it. It's in your holy and precious name that I pray, amen. Thank you so much for joining us online today. Make sure you talk this over with your life group. Uh, we're doing life group via Zoom right now and it's going great. People are jumping in. And so if you're not in a life group, just let us know. There'll be a link in, in, on the platform that you're wa watching. If there's not one, just reach out to us and we will, get you, um, we will get you plugged in as soon as possible. As always, I wanna challenge you to leave here, to close out this browser, to turn off your TV, to put your phone in your pocket, to leave here, not dismissed, but sent. Go be a Jesus follower who makes and disciples other Jesus followers. God bless.